Let me pray before we get started. Father, I thank you um, for Jesus, for this time of year that we get to specifically remember um, that he was incarnated, that God became man um, in a mysterious way, in a way that we don't understand, but in a way that was necessary because you loved us and he died to save us. So, Father, I ask that you be with us this morning um, as your word is read and preached. I pray that our hearts would be receptive to what you have to say, um, that wherever there is conviction, that, that your Holy Spirit would prompt us to act on it, and that we would be humble enough to receive your word and to uh, realize that, that any change we need, need to make is, is worth making because you ask us to make it because you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. Christmas is over. So, what did you ask for this Christmas? Did you get what you asked for? Uh, the author of the Calvin and Hobbes comic strip, uh, he wrote a Sunday comic once, and, and in that comic strip, and we can show it right now, uh, Calvin and Hobbes are walking along, and Calvin asks Hobbes, he says, if you could have anything in the world right now, what would it be? And so Hobbes thinks about it. Hmm. Anything, anything at all, whatever you want. A sandwich. A sandwich? What kind of a stupid wish is that? Talk about a failure of imagination. I'd ask for a trillion billion dollars, my own space shuttle, a, a private continent. And how does it end? Hobbs making a sandwich and he says, I got my wish. And Calvin just sitting there, I didn't get what I wanted, did I? See, a lot of times it depends on what you ask for, doesn't it? Is it something extravagant like a trillion billion dollars or a spaceship? Maybe not. But if it's reasonable, maybe. Uh, I told the story last year, the last time I breathed, about how one time I made a list of like 50 video games that I wanted in it, and I only got two, and, and I was upset about it. Um, my expectations were unreasonable. But there's other things that also go into it, right? Uh, it's not just what you ask for, but it's, it's who you ask, it's when you ask, it's why you ask, uh, even where you ask. Some things are meant to be private requests as opposed to public requests. Um, the person you ask, do they have the disposition? Do they have the resources? Uh, do they have the right motive to give it to you? Um, you don't give a child candy for dinner, even though they really want it and they ask for it. So we know that's not good for them in the long term. We try to do what's best for them. It also depends on how you ask, right? If you ask with an attitude of arrogance or entitlement, making a demand, nieces should take note, uh, you're much less likely to get what you want. I'm embarrassed now, it's so funny. Uh, or if, if you can tell that someone is being insincere, if they're just buttering you up in the way that they're asking for you, you're probably not going to give them what they ask for. Why? Because nobody wants to be used. And just like the comic shows us, uh, what we ask for 
can reveal a lot about what we really value and can show that our hearts are not in the right place. And the same thing goes for when we ask God for something. What have you asked God for lately? And what does that reveal about your heart? It can be very hard to want the right things, especially when we're already confused and hurting. But I think God is much more interested in the condition of our heart for Him rather than just giving us everything that we want, contrary to what some televangelists will tell you. God just wants to give you everything. So this sermon is not going to be a kind of how-to manual for how to get God to give you everything that you want. But instead, hopefully it's going to serve as kind of a gut check for, for what we really value in our hearts. Because so often we don't even realize that we are asking for the wrong thing. We think we have good motives, um, but oftentimes we're just being self-serving and we simply want to make our lives more comfortable. And now there's nothing wrong with being comfortable, but the question is, is that the road that God has for us to walk on? So our subject today is not going to be, how can I get God to give me what I want? But how can I ask for better things, the right things? And what are the things in my heart that are preventing me from walking the road that follows Jesus wholeheartedly? And so I know this is going to be a hard message today to hear. I know that because it was a hard message to prepare. Uh, not only because of, of how much text I'm going to try to get through this morning, um, but also because I had to sit down and take an honest look at my own heart and see the ways that I don't live up to what God has called me to. Um, so I ask you to turn with me in the book of Mark. We're going to be looking at a lot of chapter 10 today. Um, and we're going to explore these ideas through three different stories that happen back to back to back in the book of Mark. And they all lead up to a surprising climax. Uh, we... We have to go through so much text today because all of these stories are building on top of each other, leading up to the main point that Mark is trying to make. And maybe accidentally we'll get a mini lesson on how to study the Bible as well. Okay. Um, so hopefully today we're going to see three things from this text. We're going to see the road that Jesus wants us to walk, a roadblock to avoid, and the representative of what a true follower and disciple looks like. So let me try to catch us up to where we are in the book of Mark. Okay, The opening chapter has declared, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. And that word way, prepare the way of the Lord in the Greek is the word hados. Okay? Hados, that's going to be significant in our passages today, so remember that word, hados. And then we see in the rest of the, uh, the book of Mark up to this point, we see Jesus' ministry in Galilee, and he's doing miracles, and he's proving his authority, and he's making some enemies along the way. And then we see in chapter 8, we see Jesus has started out on a journey. This is the beginning of the journey to Jerusalem, where he's going to be crucified. 
And he's consistently on this journey trying to teach the disciples, particularly about the cost of discipleship, and they just never get it. Perhaps we will bump into someone along the way who can show us what true discipleship looks like. Which brings us to chapter 10. And we're going to begin with what is commonly known as the rich young ruler. Okay, we can't spend too much time here, but, but I'll sum it up because it sets the stage for the main passage that I want us to get to this morning. So verse 17, it tells us, And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? There's that word journey again. Jesus setting out on his journey is our, word, is our Greek word, hados, again. Jesus is setting out on the way, on the road. And it's going to pop up some more. And so this young man, this young rich, got his life all together guy, uh, asked Jesus about salvation. And so without going into all the details and specifics of it, uh, we get to the point where Jesus shows him that he isn't good enough because Jesus gets right to the heart of the issue, and he asked the man to give up the thing that actually means the most to him, his wealth. His identity was not found in Christ. His identity was found in his possessions and what his possessions provided for him. And the man walked away grieved because he just realized that the thing that I thought I wanted, I'm not going to get because of what I actually love. I actually love my wealth, and it's getting in the way of the thing that I thought I wanted, and I can't give it up. This candidate for discipleship has failed. And so this episode leads into a discussion between Jesus and the disciples about wealth. And Jesus tells the disciples how hard it is for wealthy people to be saved, which absolutely stuns the disciples, because in their culture, wealth was the sign that God's favor was on you. And if those people aren't getting in, who can get in? How can anyone else make it? And so Peter, never one to miss an opportunity to score some brownie points, uh, he makes the connection about what Jesus asked this rich young ruler to do and what the disciples have already done. And he, and he pops up in verse 28 and he says, he says, see, we have left everything and followed you. See how great we are? And Jesus acknowledges his response and says in verse 29 and 30, it says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus says, yes, you gave up everything and you will be rewarded for it. In this life, through the community of believers, through everything they have, their houses, their mothers, all that's going to be part of you for you to share in. And even in the next life, with eternal life. And just a side note, this also confirms that Jesus was not telling the rich young ruler that everybody 
needs to sell all their possessions and give it away. Because if that were true, there would be nothing left for believers to share amongst each other, as this text clearly teaches that we are going to be expected to do for other people. But notice how he also slips that persecutions in there. As if to say, don't get caught up in in all these rewards because there are absolutely going to be challenges along the way. And in our main passage this morning, Jesus makes it explicit as what he is talking about. So coming to verse 32, we will now see that the road that Jesus walks requires the cross. The road that Jesus walks requires the cross. This section begins once again reminding us of the way or the road of Jesus, the hadas. The same way that was prepared for Jesus at the beginning of chapter 1 is the same road that he is walking now. Jesus reminds the disciples again what his path is going to cost him and them. So read along from verse 32. It says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed him were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus says, don't get caught up in all the rewards. All that business I just told you about. Yes, that is coming. But before we get all, get to all that, you need to understand and grasp that things are not going to be easy. The journey of, of Jesus and following him was never going to be easy. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be sacrifice if you are going to be faithful. Because Jesus was ahead of them. What does that mean? Where were the others? They were behind him. They were following him. And they were going to walk that same road that Jesus was walking. We need to hear this. We need to hear about the centrality of the cross to our salvation and the expectation of suffering. This is a part of the reason why I think we have so many lukewarm Christians. So many people were raised to think that being a Christian is supposed to make your life better and easier. You should expect to see everything in your life improve by being a Christian. We should be wiser people, certainly. But I think when we don't talk about the reality of the cross and following Jesus, we are raising up a generation of believers who will abandon the faith as soon as it stops feeling good. Because when the trouble hits, there's all this disorientation and confusion because we think, this isn't supposed to be happening. And then people do whatever it takes to make the pain go away. I think that's part of the reason why statistics tell us so many young people leave the church once they reach their college age years. They didn't know it was going to get hard to be faithful. 
that they were going to have to deny themselves and take up their own cross. And they also weren't taught about the community of believers that is their refuge when the suffering and confusion hits. So we've got a bunch of individuals who are wrestling with their faith and they don't know who to talk to about it. I hope that never happens at Calvary Bible Church because parents are preparing their children, being intentional with them from a young age before the suffering hits. Teaching them that life is not simply going to be about being successful and making lots of money. There will be battles to be fought for your faith. There will be things you have to deny yourself. And yes, it's going to feel like torture. But you've got a community here that will love you through those hard times, even when you don't want them to, because they've been there. So, gut check. How are we doing? I'll leave that. Oh. The point is, we shouldn't be shocked when suffering hits. It's like choosing to fly Bahamas Air and being surprised that the flight is late. Y'all in the union, eh? <laughs> you could report me, I don't care. Um, And so, so we've seen that the, the cross is required to walk this road that Jesus is on. And this next set of verses are going to reveal that there's, there's a roadblock on this road that we need to avoid. A roadblock to avoid on the road of discipleship. This isn't the first time he's taught them this. See, in chapter 8, and then again in chapter 9, he told them, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to rise again. And you would think, these are the disciples. They're with him all the time, right? When Jesus tells them something directly, they're going to listen and they're going to understand. You don't have to tell them twice. Apparently, you have to tell them three times at least. And so we have this conversation from verses 35 to 45. We'll read up to, up to verse 41 right here. And James and John, inner circle guys, in chapter 9, they got to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And they got to see Jesus be transfigured. I think that goes to their head a little bit. Uh, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. I think there's some pride in there. Um, you owe us. Do whatever we ask. <clears throat> and he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus being patient. I think he sees a teaching moment coming up here. And I think he's going to give them just enough rope to hang themselves. <clears throat> and they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. That pride again. We're worth it. We're the inner circle. We deserve to be there. And you can see the, the politics, the political maneuvering that they're making over the other guys already. We deserve to be there. Those guys don't. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? 
He's being patient with them again. He's, he's giving them a chance to backpedal a little bit uh, from what they said. But they don't back down. They double down. <clears throat> and they said to him, we are able. There's that pride again. But you know what they're saying here as well? They're saying, we're just as good as you. Whatever you can handle, we can handle. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Now we see the pride in the other guys. We see it littered throughout this passage. A roadblock to true discipleship for James and John was pride. And what can I get out of following Jesus? The rich young ruler failed because of, of what he thought he had earned. But James and John failed because of what they thought they had sacrificed. It seems like they got caught up in, in Peter's statement and Jesus' comments about rewards. And they just wanted to jump straight to the glory. While ignoring the earthly reality of what Jesus had just said about suffering. When Jesus asked them if they're ready to suffer, they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Suffering, pain, dying, martyr. Yeah, okay. When do we rule? That's what I want to know. See, James and John, they just had, they just had their futures all mapped out. You talk about a five-year plan, they got a 500-year plan. They're not just worried about this life, they got the next life mapped out. But Jesus says, no. You guys, you have to join me in this, whether you're ready for it or not. But there's this lingering character flaw in the disciples, constantly arguing about who is going to be greatest in the kingdom and jockeying for a position. Because you know that's what they were really mad about, right? Because they didn't think of it first. Or maybe they thought they were better than the brothers. And I, I know you. I, you ain't no better than me. Why do I have to be underneath you in the kingdom? Pride and arrogance are oozing out of these men. Which, incidentally, is more proof that the disciples didn't invent Christianity. They didn't make it up. Because usually, you don't tell your followers that you only got on board because you wanted to rule over them. Right? I just wanted to be your boss. That's the only reason why I'm here. You don't tell people you are power hungry. This doesn't happen. But these details are included because A, they really happened, and B, because they teach us that we must avoid pride and embrace humility. But Jesus is patient. He reminds them that He has not set a model of ambition for them. He has set the model of sacrifice and service and slavery for others. And they will be expected to do the same. See verses 42 through 45. And, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. 
But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Slavery? Yes. Jesus says in verse 44, you must be a slave of all. Everybody is a slave to something. Usually themselves. But God wants us to be a slave to something better. Namely, righteousness and service. But so often we've got our own plans. Just like James and John, we've got our own plans. And they override the real plan that Jesus has for us. And sometimes our plans are good and not sinful. But if they cause us to only seek our own success while ignoring others, then we're missing the true road of discipleship. And sadly, I can relate to James and John a little bit. I think all of us can, in a little bit. Um, yeah, I just graduated from, from Dallas Theological Seminary in May. And, and as a graduate of DTS, you kind of have this idea of what it's going to look like when you graduate. Oh, man, all these churches are going to want to hire me. Oh, they're going to they're gonna pay me this much money. They're going to give me this much authority. Um, and so I send out my resumes, and, and not a lot of interest is coming back, you know. Um, and so I think God had to do some practical humbling in me. Um, not only that, my, my apartment lease came up, and I didn't have anywhere to go um, because I didn't know where my job was going to be, so I couldn't sign a lease. Or like, you've got to sign at least a six-month lease or something like that. I didn't know where I was going to be. Um, so, so I'm homeless and unemployed for about two months this summer where all I can do is rely on, on my friends to let me sleep on their couches. Um, and then, and then I, I heard about a part-time job opportunity that was available. But I couldn't even take that job because my work visa hadn't come in. And two days before I could have taken that job, the work visa came in. And so throughout this, and while I was sleeping on people's couches, there were two separate times where I didn't know where I was going to be sleeping the next night because people ran out of room and, and I, they had to kick me out again. Uh, but each of those times, and just like the, the work visa, there were always moments where God provided right at the instant that I needed it. And it was like, <clears throat> It was like God saying, I'm going to give you everything you need, but just at the moment that you need it, and nothing more. Because, Terrence, you need to be taken down a notch or two. You thought you were cool, but you're just not that cool. All right? And I'm sure there will be lots of people after the service who will be happy to tell me that they knew I wasn't cool for a long time. Uh... And it'll hurt my feelings a little bit, uh, but I'm still working on my humility, so be kind. 
But that's a great lesson for us to learn. None of us are as cool as we think we are. Teens, you are not cool. Your music is awful. Sorry. Adults, you are not cool. None of us are too cool to serve others. I was at the Boxing Day luncheon uh, where we had tons of volunteers and tons of food. Amazing, the people who donated time and, and that food and cooked. Nobody was trying to be better than anybody else. Nobody was trying to impress anybody. Those people were embodying the idea of sacrificing and serving for others. And we know we can do it because Jesus tells us the Lord of the universe himself humbled himself and gave himself up as a ransom, as a sacrifice for us. And so we've seen the rich young ruler fail and the disciples themselves have failed to show us what true discipleship looks like. Is there anyone who can show us what it takes to be a true disciple? And and it's not Jesus. Yes, verses 46 to 52 introduces us to someone who gets it. So after showing us the road and the roadblock, Mark now shows us the representative of true discipleship. The representative of true discipleship. So now Jesus heads to Jericho, He's only a few miles from Jerusalem now, and you can feel the tension gaining a little bit. Like, oh, he's really almost there, and what's going to happen to him there? And as he's leaving Jericho, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus is sitting where? Uh, Verse 46 says, by the roadside, or the road. He's by it. But that, that, that word again is our word, hados. He's by the hados. He's not on the road He's sitting by it. But when he hears Jesus is in town, he does whatever it takes, whatever he can to get Jesus' attention. He cries out, and some people, probably the disciples, tell him to shut up because he's just a beggar. But he's persistent because he's not going to let anything prevent him from the opportunity to speak to Jesus. And he calls Jesus the Son of David, He recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the only person in the world, he's the only person in this book that calls Jesus by that specific name, which shows just how much insight he has into who Jesus is. And based on who he knows Jesus to be, he cries out for mercy. He doesn't demand kingdoms. He cries out for mercy in a state of humility. Now, I think I've, I've preached this passage before, and I think I've made uh, the whole focus about how we should be nice to poor people because Jesus was nice to poor people. Um, and yes, that's true. As some might say from this passage, look, Jesus can heal blind people. That's amazing. Maybe we should try to heal blind people too. But Jesus has already healed a blind person in chapter 8. Uh, we know he can do that. So why, why do we get this again? I think we totally miss the main point of the passage when we make it all about the miracle or about the blindness. How do I know? Because, 
Because when Jesus does call him over, their conversation gives us the key. Read along from verse 50. It says, And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? We see two great parallels here. We see Bartimaeus jumping up and leaving his cloak behind, just like the disciples had left everything behind. But we also see Jesus repeating the exact same question to Bartimaeus that he asked James and John. These are passages that are meant to be read together. We've already seen what James and John's request revealed about their heart. Jesus gives Bartimaeus a chance to show what's in his heart. Bartimaeus tells Jesus, let me recover my sight. I don't want to rule kingdoms. I don't want a ton of money. I just want to be able to see, and I know that you're the only one with the ability to do it. Jesus recognizes his faith and heals him. And Bartimaeus instantly follows him. Verse 52, And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way, on the Hadar. So this passage is not about how we can be healed from our ailments, but rather, who is the true disciple? The true disciple is the one who follows Jesus on the way, knowing that the cross is coming. In this case, it's the poor, humble, faith-filled blind man who just wants to see so he can follow Jesus, who turns out to be the true disciple. The true disciple is willing to leave everything behind because of who they believe Jesus is, not just what he can do for them, like James and John thought. So the question now becomes, if Jesus asked you, what do you want me to do for you? What kind of answer would you give him? What would your answer reveal about your heart and your motives? Would it help you walk a better road of discipleship that endures suffering and serves others? Or would it just try to make you be more successful and more comfortable and push your own agenda? These are questions that each of us needs to explore in our hearts. That's one way we can apply this message today. Ask those questions to ourselves. But there's another practical thing that I want us to think about doing. Put these truths into practice. So that we're not shocked when suffering enters our lives. I want us to prepare a response. Prepare a response ahead of time. It's going to kind of be like your own personal suffering survival guide. When you go home today, at some point, sit down and write how you are going to respond to the next episode of persecution and hardship that comes into your life. Let me make a couple of suggestions to get you started. All right. Number one, remember. Remember that you signed up for this. Jesus made it clear that this was always a part of the deal. There was no bait and switch. He didn't promise you one thing and you got another. And so to be able to expect to be able to walk through life with with no hardship is unreasonable. And I think a part of what 
what compounds our pain when we suffer is not always the situation or the event itself that's happening, but sometimes it's just the surprise of it. Right? It's the idea that this shouldn't be happening to us. But Jesus made clear that's not true. The reality is that, yes, suffering hurts. I went to seminary to tell you that suffering hurts. But to continue to be shocked or embittered by it is to let it win. And it's to get off of the road of discipleship. Number two, uh, prayer and the Word. Basic to discipleship, but they are also our best resources as we walk this road. Number three, the community of believers. Your faith and your walk will never survive if you try to be independent and tough it out on your own. Jesus promised that we will receive many more mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and houses if we are willing to deny ourselves for His sake. And and it's in those relationships and in those places that we get to be encouraged in our walk, as we walk this road. So think about specific people that you can go to and talk to. Plan ahead. Let them know you're coming um, so that they're not shocked, so that they're available, so that they're ready to help you through it. When we're prepared for the suffering, we have a better chance to endure the suffering and continue following Jesus on the way. As I conclude, uh, we've seen that Jesus, the way of Jesus requires the cross, the roadblock of pride must be avoided, and the true disciple is ready to follow Jesus and respond to suffering like a true disciple would, with humility and endurance. So I close with a quote from a, he's an old dead guy, he's named William Gurnall. He was a pastor in the 1600s in England. And he wrote a book called The Christian Incomplete Armor. This is what he says. He says, why should you fear to be stripped of, of that which you have resigned already to Christ? It is the first lesson you learn. If a Christian, if a Christian, to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow your master so that the enemy comes too late. What an interesting phrase. Enemy comes too late. He misses it. You have no life to to lose because you have given it already to Christ. Nor can man take away that that without God's leave. All you have is ensured. And though God has not promised you immunity from suffering in this kind, yet He has undertaken to bear the loss. Indeed, to pay you a hundredfold, and you will not stay for it till another world. We know our suffering is temporary. And when Jesus returns, May he find us faithful and still walking the road of discipleship. Let's pray. Maybe you have drifted from the road. Maybe you've decided to explore a different path because it was too hard. The good news is that no matter how far you've walked away from the path, it only takes one step to come back. You can rejoin following Jesus on the road.
if you have never started walking down that road, if you have never been a follower of Jesus Christ, you can do that too. Simply believe that Jesus did what He said He did, what He came to do, to die for your sins, and that He was resurrected, that He rose again on the third day. Be like Bartimaeus. Put your faith in Him. It won't be misplaced. Father, I thank You so much for today. I thank You for Your Word, for its challenge, for its encouragement. Lord, I pray for those who are suffering, who, who have been shocked by it, by the intensity of it sometimes. Lord, I pray that we would all be sensitive to others, that we would be willing to serve, not think we're too cool or, or that we're better than that. Lord, I pray that those in the service today who have never placed their faith in You would, would do that, Lord, work in their heart. I pray for those who, who have wandered Lord, I just pray that you encourage them. Show them that they can come back, that you still love them, that you always have loved them, that you're not angry with them. Because Jesus bore all the wrath. We just, we just want them to return home and you'll receive them with open arms. Father, I pray for this church in whatever season that we're in, that we would continue to walk the road of faithful discipleship and be a refuge to each other. In Jesus' name, amen.